Palmville United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, December 8th, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think it was Woody Allen who once said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans, right? Anybody been there before? You, you know, the, the book of Proverbs says it this way, human, the human mind plans the way, but the Lord directs the steps. And I know I've had those times in my life where I knew exactly what I was going to do, and then I started out to do it, and then somewhere along the way, it ended up something completely different from anything I had ever imagined before I started. Well, that's exactly the theme for today's Bible passage and for the movie that we're going to be journeying with together. Welcome to the second installment of Christmas, the Director's Cut. is our Advent series. Uh, we're looking at Hollywood Christmas movies every week, uh, well, except next week we have the children's pageant that's coming, but every week in December uh, we're going to be looking at a movie and seeing how we can find uh, themes of the true Christmas story uh, from Scripture uh, present there, whether or not the director intended it in the first place. We, we began last week with the Polar Express, and uh, next week, of course, is the children's pageant. After that, we'll look at Miracle on 34th Street. On Christmas Eve, we'll do a Charlie Brown Christmas, and in the Sunday following Christmas, we'll look at a, a newer movie called The Ultimate Gift. Well, today we're going to look at the 1947 film The Bishop's Wife, starring David Niven, Loretta Young, and the incomparable Cary Grant. Now, I'm sure that some of the more, shall we say, mature members uh, here this morning may have seen this back in the day. Uh, others may recognize the remake that was done in 96 with Whitney Houston and Denzel Washington called The Preacher's Wife. Well, if you've seen the original, you know it's just a fabulous film, and there, there's so many great scenes in the movie. There's no way I could show a clip from every scene or we'd be here all day. Uh, so undoubtedly, there's going to be a scene or two that you love from the original that's not going to be there. And if you've never seen the 1947 movie, I highly recommend it. I'm sure you can find it streaming somewhere uh, and watch it in its entirety. It's just a lovely film. Henry Brom, uh, played by David Niven, is the bishop in this film. He's a, an Episcopal priest who used to be the local pastor of St. Timothy's Church. And then he was uh, promoted to the role of bishop. Yet as the film opens, we uh, notice his wife, uh, Julia, played by the timeless Loretta Young, who's a loving and devoted spouse. But we see the strain that his new position is having on her and the impact it's having on Henry as well. You see, he's trying to build a cathedral. He's trying to raise millions of dollars at a time when money was even more hard to come by than it is today. It's not just his goal or his dream. This is really his purpose. This is like his whole reason for being. And, and yet, it's dragging him down in so many ways. The, the strain that's placed on his own countenance, upon his marriage with Julia, upon his interactions with just about everyone in the community. Well, let's watch as Julia comes home late for an important committee meeting about the new cathedral. Due to copyright restrictions, we're unable to play the audio versions of the video clips that we showed in worship. Mm, yes. Well, Henry is a man with a problem, that's for sure. But he has a plan. Right now, it's kind of a rather 
inefficient one. Um, he will, by hook or by crook, try to court the favors of the rich and powerful, do whatever he can uh, to get them to give him money to build the cathedral, his cathedral, sorry, God's cathedral. <clears throat> In our scripture reading for today, Joseph is also a man with a problem and with a plan. Now, it may be surprising to note that there, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the stories about the life and, and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. But of those four Gospels, only two actually bring in the birth story, Matthew and Luke. Now, in Luke's Gospel, the angel Gabriel is sent to visit a young girl named Mary. She was probably 12, 13, maybe 14 years old at the time. And she's informed by Gabriel that she will become pregnant uh, carrying God's son, that she will give birth to the Savior of the world. But Matthew's gospel story tells it from a different perspective. Matthew goes from Joseph's story. And Matthew doesn't presuppose that anyone knows about the angel's visit to Mary at all. So, so Matthew lets us in on what must have been like for Joseph to experience this firsthand. We pick up the story in chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot to unpack from this single verse. For starters, we know that Mary and Joseph are engaged. Now today, when a couple wants to get engaged, they go to interesting places like uh, Disneyland. And they bring photographers with them to document it so they can post on social media and let all their friends know this amazing thing has happened, right? But today, engagements are not the same things as weddings. That's not how it was back in Jesus' day. Uh, in Jesus' day, if a young man wanted to marry a young woman, first he had to make sure that his parents approved and that her parents approved, and the two parents would get together and make sure that they both thought it was a good deal. And then he, the groom-to-be, would come over to the house of the potential bride-to-be and would offer her a glass of wine. And if she took the wine, then that meant she uh, would agree to this marriage, that she would willingly accept him into her life, that they would live together forever. But if she politely uh, refused the wine, uh-oh, uh all bets are off. Now, if she does says yes... If she drinks the wine, then they would officially be engaged. And the groom would pay a bride price to the bride's family. And scholars say that uh, it was probably in Jesus' day equivalent to the value of a single uh, room house. That's how much money that uh, in, in, in cash or gifts that he would have to give to the, to the woman's family. And then they would sign a contract that said that they are legally bound to each other, that they uh, will spend the rest of their lives together. And if the man, for any reason, backs out of the relationship before the actual marriage ceremony, then the bride gets to keep all of the wonderful gifts that have been showered uh, upon her by the groom. You see, for all intents and purposes, the couple was already married. They just wouldn't sleep together until the actual wedding ceremony took place. And that wouldn't take place until the groom-to-be had built an extension on his father's house so they would have a place to live together as a new couple. Now, the Hebrew Scriptures dictated that if an engaged woman was found to be pregnant by someone other than her fiancé, she was to be put to death. Just let that sink in for a little bit. By the time of Jesus' birth, however, uh, the rabbis had mitigated that a bit, and women weren't being stoned for having been found pregnant 
But still, the penalty was severe and humiliating, not just for the young woman, but for her entire family. So Matthew tells us that Joseph somehow found out about the pregnancy. Now, I want to know, how did that happen? Like, did he just notice that she was starting to get a little bit larger than usual? Did she tell him about the angel's visit? We don't know. It just says that he became aware of it. And, and what a shock it must have been, right? He knew he wasn't the father. This is the woman that he had pledged his life to, that made a significant financial contribution to her family so they could spend together, and suddenly she's not who he thought she was. Verse 19. Her husband, notice the term, they're still engaged, but husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, to planned to dismiss her quietly. We don't know a lot about Joseph. He, he appears in a few stories throughout the Gospels, but it's interesting that the first character insight that Matthew gives us about Joseph is by saying he is righteous. Righteous is another way of saying just or honorable. So when our story starts, Joseph has made up his mind. We don't know how much time has passed when he, when he found out and when uh, this happens in the story, but he's made up his mind. He's going to uh, dismiss her quietly. He's not going to go by the letter of the law. He's not going to, uh, uh, to call her out in front of the entire community, which he had every right to do. In fact, if he did so, then he would be able to recoup all of the money and the gifts that he had given to the family because she had broken the contract. But no, it says he is going to instead to dismiss her quietly. It doesn't mean anything sneaky. It just means that he's not going to press charges against her. Two men, Henry and Joseph. Two problems, a cathedral and a pregnant wife. Two plans of action. They both decide how they're going to move, and then angels enter the equation. Let's watch. The angel's name is Dudley, and after properly introducing himself to Henry, he introduces himself to Henry's wife, Julia. Now, Henry's the only one to know that Dudley is an angel. Everyone else is supposed to just believe that Dudley is Henry's personal assistant. Let's watch how that first encounter between the two of them ends as Dudley outlines the, uh, outlines the perimeters, the parameters of their relationship. Well, Henry had promised Julia that he'd spend the following day with her, just the two of them. And they would enjoy each other's company. They would go to their favorite restaurant. But unfortunately, uh, an important meeting about the cathedral building comes up. And so Henry turns his attentions there. Dudley finishes his work rather quickly and then proceeds to meet up with Julia and her daughter, Debbie, in the park. Well, Henry, of course, is feeling guilty about being away from his life, wife, so he leaves the meeting early only to come home to an empty house. You can already begin to see the jealousy that's coming into the bishop's countenance. Well, not only did they go out to lunch together, but Julia and Dudley went out to lunch at the same restaurant where Henry had uh, first proposed to Julia. And then after spending time with the professor, a, a friend of the Brahms, the two of them make it home. And, and Henry, as you can imagine, is not pleased with his new assistant. And in this scene, he seriously doubts that Dudley is who he says he is. So he gets ready to lock him into his study and demand proof. So we know how Henry feels, but what about Joseph from our biblical story? 
When the unnamed angel comes to visit Joseph in a dream, he begins to challenge Joseph's plan, the plan of dismissing Mary quietly. And, and pay attention in the verse to when it is that the angel comes. Matthew 1, verse 20. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. It's kind of subtle, but did, did you catch the divine timing here? That God waited until Joseph had made up his mind, had settled on his plan, who knew his course of action, and then God interrupted him with the angel. What's the saying? If you want to make God laugh, tell God about your plans. Was Joseph being too hasty here? Did, did he make a rash decision? Maybe. But then again, there's a passage in the book of Revelation. The church in Laodicea is being scolded for being lukewarm. Uh, the writer says, you're neither hot nor cold. Like, like, give me something. Give me warm, give me hot or give me cold. But don't be this middle-of-the-road wishy-washy. I think that there's times that, that we, as people of faith, we, we want God's direction in our life, especially if it's a really big decision. And so we, we pray and we ask, God, show us a sign. Help us know the way to go. And sometimes we wait and we wait and we wait and we never make a decision because we don't know what to do. And I think God is saying sometimes, uh, hot or cold, Give me something. Give me something to work with. Just don't stand there doing nothing. Do something. So, so maybe there's times that God needs us to take that first step. It may be in the completely wrong direction, but do something because our plans never get in the way of how God wants things to work. Verse 20. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll, she'll bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We talk about God's timing. If you've been in the, the huddle small groups, we hear about Kairos time. God's time is different from our time, and at just the right time, God sends the angel to appear to Joseph. And Joe is informed that his bride-to-be, the, the love of his life, has not been sleeping around or, as was very common, had not been raped by a Roman soldier. No, she is with child from the Holy Spirit, that God is doing something amazing in her life, and this child who's born from above will save people from their sins, and you are to name him Jesus. The Hebrew and Aramaic forms of Jesus and he will save are very, very similar. But unlike today, the name Jesus, uh, back in Jesus' day, was quite common. Many, many people were named Jesus. Um, in fact, the Hebrew version of Yeshua, of Jesus, is actually translated Joshua. Well, Henry needed to be saved himself, actually saved from himself. He just didn't realize it at this moment. And feeling that Dudley was moving in on his wife, including uh, his relationships not only with Julia, but with his daughter, and, and even with his dog, Queenie. He's figured he now has to take things into his own hands. So the following night, he's supposed to be uh, going with Julia to hear a choir rehearsal of the youth choir from St. Timothy's, the church that he used to serve at. But instead, he finds himself going to Mrs. Hamilton's mansion. Remember, she's the one at the beginning of the film that vowed, if you don't build it my way, you're not going to build it at all. Well, Dudley had actually volunteered to go and represent him with Mrs. Hamilton, but he declined. He's so um, unsure of Dudley's motives that he went and do it himself. So Dudley went to the choir rehearsal with Julia. 
Henry quickly gave in to Mrs. Hamilton for whatever she wanted, just so that she would release the money to have the cathedral built. And then he went to rush over to St. Timothy's to meet up with his wife. Unfortunately, um, he literally got stuck, like stuck in the chair. Uh, the butler came out and said, oh yeah, we just had the, uh, the seat varnished. I forgot to mention it to you. And so he can't get out of the chair and get out the door to see his wife. Meanwhile, when the choir rehearsal is over, Julia and Dudley get into a taxi cab together. They meet a delightful cab driver named Sylvester. And it's easy to see this wonderful chemistry that's developing between Dudley and Julia. Let's watch. So what follows is a delightful scene of the three of them ice skating. And I wish I could show you the scene. It's wonderful because neither of them, neither Julia nor uh, Sylvester, start out very good. And then, of course, with Dudley's help, they become these amazing skaters and they just have a grand time. And the joy is still on their faces as they step out of Sylvester's cab back at the bishop's residence. Let's watch. Well... I don't think it was the human nature that Henry was worried about that night. It really was the angelic nature. So he confronts Dudley once again, this time eager to rid himself of Dudley's meddling influence. At the same time, we begin to see that Henry and Dudley may have a different opinion and idea as of to why Dudley's actually there in the first place and how long he's going to stay. Let's listen in. Well, the next day, Dudley is nowhere to be found. And Henry hopes he's actually finally left, while Julia and Debbie and pretty much anyone that's ever met him uh, hopes that's not the case. They love having him there. But Dudley still has a few loose ends to tie up before he eventually departs, one of them being cranky old Mrs. Hamilton. And after their visit, she decides to give Henry uh, her money to help the poor and the needy, that it doesn't have to go to build a cathedral. She says, meeting Dudley was the greatest spiritual experience of my life. Still kind of reeling from that incredible turnaround, Henry goes to see the professor on his way home. And again, bombarded with stories about how amazing Dudley has been in his life. And when Henry leaves, he's bound and determined to do whatever it takes to fight to keep Julia. Dudley needs to say goodbye to Julia, but we wonder, can he actually do that? And when I first watched the film, I thought, oh, oh, he's just playing along to try to get uh, Henry jealous so he'll realize what's truly important in his life. And maybe, maybe that's really what's happening. But the more I watch this scene, I realize there's a deeper longing in Dudley. Let's watch. Now all that was left was to say goodbye to Henry. Because Henry was finally able to figure out just what was most important in his life and his ministry. The last scene of the movie is one I'm not going to be able to show you, but it's Henry's Christmas Eve sermon. And the sermon was actually written for him by Dudley. It's a reminder of the true meaning of Christmas, the story of a child born in a manger, uh, that same child that brings us back to the story of Joseph and to our stories as well. I mean, Joseph thought he knew what he was going to do. He knew what he needed to do. The angel came down and gave him news that turned him in an unexpected direction. And it involved quite a bit of trust and faith on, on his part as well, especially when all he had to go on was the word of an angel. And just ask Bishop Henry how hard it is sometimes to believe what an angel tells you. Could it be that this Christmas, God wants to do something unexpected in your lives? 
Could it be that Jesus needs to break into your world once again, into your sphere of influence? I mean, maybe the things that you're finding yourself preoccupied right now really aren't the things that God wants you to be focusing on. Are you open to however God may want to change and reorient your life and perspective during this Christmas season? Can you trust God and however God needs to move? It may change some of your relationships. It may involve giving more of yourself away to others in need. It may require you to re-examine the ways you share your resources, uh, like Mrs. Hamilton had to during that story. Who knows, it might even cause you to become more involved in the life and ministry of what we're doing here at Palmdale United Methodist Church in the year to come. Whatever it may be, I truly believe that God wants and needs to break into each of our lives this Christmas. The question is, is it going to take an angel to convince you? Or, or maybe could today, with the service, the scripture reading, the songs, the message, the movie, maybe that's all the convincing we need. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Amen. <laughs>